you are listening to You Totally Made That Up, and we're not making that up, and we're not accusing you of making something up, but we don't know your lives. Maybe you've got good reason, and in which case, we hope you pull it off. So I'm Nash. And I am Tiff. And we host this nutty show, and today's episode in celebration of Christmas is nuts indeed. And even if Christmas isn't your thing, you're still going to get a kick out of it, we think, because it's not specifically about the holiday itself. We ain't talking Krampus. We ain't talking Santa. You'll see what I mean in just a second. But first, if you're new, about this podcast. It is bi-weekly. It is about history, specifically the craziest true stories that we can find, with elements of the creepy, the strange, the supernatural, the paranormal. And we mean it when we say that they are true, even if those spookier elements are only true to the people who live them. We don't do the whole the lore says or the legend goes stuff. We want the facts. We want names and dates and all that good stuff. And today, well, I will let Tiff tell you about our Christmas-related topic because it all stemmed from an all-capital letters very important discussion that she had with her husband. It is very important. You've got to make sure that you are on the same page about these things. We're debating Christmas movies. You know, we're trying to determine what are we going to watch this year? Do we want to watch the same ones over and over? And for me personally, my kids are getting older. So I'm like, let's let's move on from these animated songs getting stuck in your head. So I brought up Gremlins, to which he replied, that's not a Christmas movie. And I said, he's wrong. He's He's one million percent wrong that it sparked a whole debate. And I was like, well, you know, her dad dies in the chimney. There's that very important element of that movie. You know, it's set at Christmas time. Gizmo is a, a Christmas gift. I'm like, it's a Christmas movie. He said, no, there's too much murder. So you guys, I need you to validate me. This is a Christmas movie. You can have death in Christmas movie. I mean, the think about a Christmas carol. It's pretty grisly. It gets grisly. It gets deep. Yeah, unless you're watching The Muppet. Uh, well, fair. <laughs> fair. So that's where this came from. And I was like, Nash, I need you to back me up on this. And she's like, hey, that's kind of Christmassy. And then we talked about it. And then Nash was like, yep, gremlins, that's Christmas. That is Christmas. (laughs) There's nothing that says the meaning of the holidays, like Mogwai turning into gremlins. But surprisingly, there was stuff out there about gremlins. At first, we thought we were going to have to make this a spooky snack, which you will have heard your Christmas spooky snack Prior to this, hope you enjoyed. It was equally bizarre. But there are gremlin stories creeping around out there, definitely. Yeah, yeah. They're they're a very special little creature. So I thought, and you know, it occurs to me that I didn't even bother to discuss it. Well well, here, in a new segment I'd like to call stuff Nash should have brought up to Tiff before hitting record. <laughs> I thought that I would give some scoop on Gremlins, not the movie, the creature, but do watch the movie. It is well worth your time. Absolutely. But I was curious as to where the hell the term came from, and here's some stuff, and you can take your pick. Folklorist John W. Hazen, who actually claimed in an academic article that he saw one once, says in a section he did on Gremlins for a book that's a dictionary of sorts on creatures, that the name could come from an old English word, grimian, which means to vex. Carol Rose, who is a research member at the University of Kent and a senior lecturer at Canterbury College in England, said in her folklore book that the name could be a combination of grim, as in Grimm's fairy tales, and fremlin beer, 
And Google tells me that said beer is made by Friendland's Brewery, which was started in 1861 by a guy named Ralph, you guessed it, Friendland. Now, I had to know what the hell that was about. And Wikipedia tells me that, quote, Beginning as early as 1865, Fremlin's Brewery Company tradition included the fabled existence of an unseen, ambivalent house spirit named Robin Hodfellow. And this thing, Hodfellow, was said to be a kobold, which is a creature from German folklore that's this mischievous sprite who inhabits beer cellars and breweries, specifically. So I'm willing to bet he's a touch tipsy most of the time. That's just my guess. My favorite part, quote, Hodfellow was said to ride a miniature elephant and kept the brewery machinery in working order when he was paid his due in beer. See? Okay, tipsy. And alternatively, wrought havoc in the machinery works when not paid appropriately. Brewery workers and even publicans were said to leave small jars or dishes of beer out to appease Hodfellow, a tradition that survived at least into the late 20th century in some Maidstone and Canterbury pubs. And... I'm not going to go down the road of the association of gremlins with machinery because I'm going to be stepping on Tiff's story. Mini spoiler there. And another thing I'm not going to go too far into for the same reason, but did want to throw out there is that Roald Dahl did help popularize the term gremlin with his 1943 book called The Gremlins. Now, the etymology dictionary says that gremlin is, quote, of unknown origin. Oxford English Dictionary says probably formed by an analogy with goblin. Speculations in Barnhart, meaning the Barnhart Dictionary of Etymology, are a possible dialectal survival of Old English gremen, meaning to anger or vex, and the lin of goblin. Or could be Irish, and I'm going to butcher this, I'm so sorry Irish listeners, I did look up how to pronounce this, couldn't find it, gruamen, or bad-tempered little fellow, which... So to me, that and the earlier mention of that old word, Grimian, that sounds more legit than the Grimm's fairy tales beer combo. That one perplexes <laughs> me. But again, I don't know that author's logic. If somebody reads that book, let us know. Okay, so all that's maybe where the name came from. Take your pick. But you'll also find in lots of places that gremlin can be synonymous with goblins. And your quick and dirty on goblins is that they were, quote, creatures from European folklore first attested in stories from the Middle Ages. They are ascribed various and conflicting abilities, temperaments, and appearances, depending on the story and country of origin. They are almost always small and grotesque, mischievous or outright malicious, and greedy, especially for gold and jewelry. We have goblin stories for you at some later point, too, so won't beleaguer that. Again, the commonality here is being mischievous. That's the term I kept seeing pop up across the board, not to be mistaken with mischievous, which is not a word. And I tell you all that about gremlins and their apparent cousins goblins to set the stage for my story. Tiff, are you ready? I'm so ready. All right. A lot of y'all are going to recognize this as I go. And I want to say up front, you're going to think this is goblin, not gremlin. But I am going with gremlin because when you see the sketches of the creature that was seen, allegedly, you're going to take one look at this thing and think gremlin. And look, I'm fudging a bit here, okay? You just, you gotta roll with me. But in any event, this is one of those stories that fits our little caveat about things being true and maybe just true to the people who lived it perfectly. Because I have zero doubt that the people I'm going to tell you about experienced something. That they legit saw something. I believe they did, 100%. And it's because there was such detail and the details check out with, well, okay, they check out with, something i'm not gonna spoil it 
we'll get there. <laughs> and plus, the officials who investigated attested to the fact that the witnesses were genuinely shaken and disturbed. I don't think it was a hoax. I really don't. I don't think these were people looking to get something out of it. And one of the reasons, as I mentioned later, is because in subsequent years, and I mean years and years and years, they were so tight-lipped about it. There's a granddaughter that is more open about it, and we'll get to her in a little while. Okay, so I take you to the United States, Kentucky, Christian County, and a place called Hopkinsville, specifically to a little area on the fringe of Hopkinsville, about seven miles away, called Kelly. It is August 21st, 1955, and a pretty decently-sized group of folks are out at a farmhouse that night, most of them family. Now first, let me tell you about this area and the farmhouse. Kelly is described by one of my sources as, quote, just a smattering of houses a few miles north on the highway. This part of Kentucky is green and flat, with not a knob or a hill of any kind as far as the eye can see. Plowed fields are separated only by greenery-choked hollows. And in terms of where this farm was located with respect to the town proper, it would involve directions like go down past the train tracks and get off the highway onto the gravel road, cut through the woods. You get the idea. They had a little bit of livestock, like pigs and a couple goats. They had a cat and a dog. They grew tobacco and vegetables. They were on about three acres. And the farm was just the basic of basics in terms of functionality. There was no running water, so we've got a well and an outhouse situation here. And I've got a picture of the house in show notes. You can see that it's just unpainted wood. And one report noted that the goat pen and a bunch of fencing were busted in need of repair. There's also a cluster of maple trees at the back of the house and another cluster to the front right of the house. And except for the immediate area around it, everywhere is covered in weeds that are about two to three feet high. And the house is tiny. There's a kitchen, one bedroom with two beds, and then in the living room, there was also two beds. There was a touch of electricity, so my guess is a generator since they were so far out, and they had a dim light on the front door and the back door, a few lights in the house, and they had a small fridge in the kitchen. Also in the house were four firearms, two shotguns, a rifle, and a pistol. I am probably telling you this for a reason. Now, <laughs> at the house on this night were nine adults and three children, aged 12, 10, and 7. But apparently this is in dispute, as some places say five adults and seven children or various other combos. But when you count it, it comes to nine. So there you go. There's one myth busted for you. We know the adults for certain. We've got the matriarch of the family, Mrs. Glennie Lankford. And over for dinner that night was family friend Billy Ray Taylor, who was in from Pennsylvania with his wife. And there were two of her grown sons and their wives and their children, all of whom lived with her. And then another grandson, Elmer, a.k.a. Lucky Sutton and his wife, who were in town and just staying there for several months because they picked up work in traveling carnivals, and so I have to assume they were between jobs. He and the friend Billy Ray and their wives often did the carnival thing together. So they're the two main people who were involved in what I'm about to tell you, Billy Ray and Lucky. And by the time their night was over, they'd be peeling into the police station begging officers for help. And here's what happened. Oh, but P.S., like I did just a second ago, I'm going to be making little corrections along the way to reflect the mistakes that will pop up in the list type or quickie articles that you'll initially see if you go searching. Because my primary sources are a book written by Isabel Davis, who went there to speak with the family and other witnesses the very next year, as well as an interview with a fantastic investigator called Joe Nickel, who I'll tell you more about later. So around 7 p.m., Billy Ray heads out to the well to grab some water, and he sees a bright light and something large streak across the sky. In some versions of the story, it's told that Billy Ray swore it was an actual object he saw and that it landed somewhere nearby, 
But, quote, in the 1955 reporting of the event by Kentucky New Era's Joe Doris, Billy Ray Taylor only told the Suttons he saw a bright shooting star. In another place, it says that he was quoted as describing it as real bright with the exhaust, all the colors of the rainbow. Regardless, as another of my sources says, when he went back in and told everybody what he'd seen, nobody really paid attention because apparently he was known to exaggerate and tell stories. And spoiler, he ultimately does give differing versions over time of all that happened that night, according to multiple different reports. Then, as one of my primary sources puts it, he'd have to, quote, walk it back. (laughs) The night goes on. They eat dinner, whatever. Then around 8 p.m., they hear the dog outside just going nuts. Billy Ray and Lucky go out on the back porch, you know, out where there's a cluster of trees close by, and they see the dog tuck tail and scramble under the porch. But they see something coming toward them, and they say there was a faint glow. From Davis's book, quote, As it came nearer, they could make out what seemed to be a small man, though a man not much like any they had ever seen before. He was about three and a half feet tall, with an oversized head that was almost perfectly round and arms that extended almost to the ground. The huge hands had talons at the ends of the fingers. The eyes were much bigger than human eyes and glowed with a yellowish light. They were directed neither to the front nor the side, but about midway between. The creature's hands were raised now as if someone had told him he was about to be robbed. He was approaching the house slowly, moving to the back door. No, thank you. (laughs) So, what to do? Well, shoot the shit out of them, of course. Why is this even a question? There's no debate. They go get the 20 gauge and the 22 rifle and were tucked in the house, looking out the open door and through the windows, watching for this thing. And when it shows up again, about 20 feet from the door, they let loose. They said it kind of flipped back and away, then hightailed it out of there and back into the darkness, off to the side of the house. You know, because all those trees were blocking the moonlight. I've mentioned trees, right? Right, okay. Make it sure. They wait a little bit. Nothing's happening. So they go into the living room to the front of the house. And what do you know? Another pops. I've actually typed. I've actually typed pooped in my notes. There was no poop. I promise. (laughs) It pops its head up at the side window. Do you go out there? You do not. You fire through the screen. It flips away. It dashes off. Same routine as the one in the back. Because they're assuming this is a different one. Okay, then they opt to go outside, I imagine, to look for bodies. Now, Billy Ray steps out the front door first, and there's this little overhang above the door. And again, I've got a picture for you in show notes of this. And all of them that were still inside see, quote, a claw-like hand reach down and touch his hair. So, in other words, down from that overhang. They scream, and somebody yanks him back inside. Lucky rushes out, whips around, aims up, and fires a shotgun, and sends this thing sailing across the roof. Then Billy Ray goes, there's one up in the tree, too. Remember how I've mentioned three times now, and probably for a reason, all those trees? Lucky and Billy Ray fire, quote, knocking him off the limb. He floated to the ground. Jesus. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) They shot at him again, and he scurried off into the weeds. And these things were fast. And speaking of, when I say that, when I say things, I only mean two, personally. Because as Glennie, the mother, later told Isabel Davis, all the newspapers had exaggerated when they were saying like a dozen or 15 or whatever, that they were only seeing one at a time. I will say that my thought is, if it was one, then it was really booking it. So logically, and for the sake of argument, let's assume there's two. 
possibly three, but certainly not a swarm. But talking about how well these things were getting around, here's some dish on that. When walking toward the house, they're going slowly and raising their arms, and bless old Glenny, to Billy Ray and Lucky, she was like, hey, hey, Butch Cassidy, Sundance Kid, reckon they're trying to communicate with us? So, love Glenny, <laughs> love her. Anyway, when these things would tear off out of there, other than doing that flipping thing and floating to the ground, they'd lower their arms and go for the darkness, and quote, the legs were never seen to bend as if there were a knee joint. They seemed inflexible. No one noticed the feet. No other flexibility was noticed except for a slight movement of the talon fingers when the hand reached down toward Billy Ray's head. So, to sum up, they're stiff, but they're getting after it. I myself am picturing a rapid waddle, such as... <laughs> oh, like E.T.? Like E.T. <laughs> oh, you know, okay. Hey, calling back to last episode, perhaps like a toddler on cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. We are now at a total of four times these things have been shot at and just a big old goose egg on the killing front. And it would seem on the intimidation front because whatever they are, they are all out of fucks to give. And now comes one sauntering around the side of the house and Lucky greets it with a face full of buckshot. It again flips away and runs off. Quote, when a direct blast from a 12-gauge shotgun had no effect, Lucky made an obvious decision. He would leave the things alone. The men went back into the house to try and think what to do next. It, is that now? Is, is that the obvious decision? We're going to think things through now. Now! <laughs> oh, okay. Shoot first, ask questions later. Okay. Sure. I will say this. Other than the going outside to the well thing and the initial sighting, all of these anecdotes of the individual encounters kind of get jumbled because, for instance, at another point, they hear scratching and tapping on the roof over the kitchen and the guys go outside, they shoot, and said so this time it floats down near the busted fence, which was about 40 feet away, and they said it, quote, seemed to perch. Uh-huh. Now, tuck that little tidbit away. So they shoot at it again and it goes into the weeds. I think it's safe to say, without judgment, I'm not being ugly, I'm just going by what's been presented to me, that Billy Ray and Lucky couldn't hit the broadside of a barn. Yeah, they're, they're not doing too well with those weapons. But they've gotten more of a look at these things, at least as good a look as one can at night, and here's some more detail. They said when the arms were raised, there was more of that glowy shine and that the eyes definitely glowed. There was no mouth, and they made no sounds. They seemed to be the same color from tips to toes, and it didn't look like skin. They had pointy ears out to the sides. And I'm going to put in show notes the sketches that a man named Bud Ledwith did after he interviewed the family. So, okay, everybody's still freaked out. And Lucky later told a newspaper that it was, it was like they would shoot, then they wouldn't see anything. And then after a while, back the things would come out into the yard from the weeds or from the trees. I don't feel like these things are learning their lesson either. No, they're like, I feel like there's a disconnect on both sides. They're, I wouldn't call them aggressive, but I would possibly call them a fearless. 100% I call them fearless. So they'd show up, they wouldn't do anything. And they just, they, they didn't have a chance to retreat because everybody was shooting at them. And he said that this happened about six times. And again, bless Glenny. She's freaked out, too, at this point, but she's trying to keep everybody calm. And she keeps saying, look, they aren't doing us any harm. Can we please stop shooting at them? And this is the part that is just infuriating. Quote, 
The children were frightened too, in spite of efforts to reassure them and even to prevent them from seeing the creatures at all, but they would not be kept in bed. At least once, one child was in the front yard when a creature was seen and fired at, and by the time the family left the house, one child was screaming with fear and had to be carried to the car. Please don't shoot at gremlins in the yard when children are also in the yard. Can that just be a rule that we all agree upon? <laughs> Unreal. Oh, boy. Unreal. Huh. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I get it. You're in bed. You're a kid. Your family's already busy partying and probably keeping you awake. And then they start shooting things. So, yeah. Yeah. You're going to get up. And these, like I say, these are older kids. What did I say? Like 12, 10, and 7? Yeah. These aren't like, I don't know. Well, a toddler would be worse. The toddler would be out there going, hi, hi, hi. <laughs> so, but yeah, they, the kids weren't having any of that. I mean, and, and true, true enough. I could be a very well-disciplined child, but when the guns start going off, I don't care. I'm getting up and I'm seeing what's going on or I'm hiding under the bed. It's six of one, half dozen the other. I have a feeling that maybe that one kid was very persistent and just bolted out into the yard to see what the hell was going on. And then, surprise. As you can tell by the mention of the car in that quote, we've now arrived at the point that the family is ready to get the hell away from there and get some help. So they pile into two cars and they tear off for Hopkinsville to the police station. And perhaps, surprisingly, the response they received was sympathetic. The chief of police, a man by the name of Greenwell, said, quote, something scared these people, something beyond reason, nothing ordinary. These aren't the kind of people who normally run to the police for help. When they feel themselves threatened, what they do is reach for their guns, which which they did. This is true. And here we are. The cops believe the family and they call the state police to assist. So there are several state troopers who show up. And then this was the city police office that they were at, but the county sheriff's office was in the same building, so a handful of them are along for the ride as well. Oh, and they also call a Kentucky New Era newspaper photographer, because why not? There is a crew now going back out. And some of the family stays at the police station, but the rest, including Lucky and Billy Ray, head back out to the farm with the cops. The chief supervises them doing a search all outside and in the house, And he says later that he was being subtle about it, of course, but that he did definitely look for evidence that maybe they were drunk. And there was nothing. And others had said that there was no way because Glennie flat out wouldn't allow it. And she actually said later during a radio interview that they could have beer occasionally, but she didn't allow people to get drunk at her house. She had a strict no liquor policy. And I love this tidbit. During the search, they said everyone was on edge and that when somebody accidentally stepped on the cat's tail, Chief Greenwell said, quote, you never saw so many pistols unholstered so fast in your life. (laughs) (laughs) God, that had to be amazing. And Davis commented, quote, the fame of this anonymous cat seems to be permanent. Everyone I talked to mentioned that screech and the ensuing panic. (laughs) Oh my gosh. There are some soiled britches too. You know that. Oh yeah. The cat, but the cat and the dog were useless as noted. (laughs) The cat and dog did fuck all to help with this situation. Anyway, they find shotgun shells, spent casings, whatever. And they saw the holes in the screens. And while some reporting made a big deal out of this, trying to imply that it was, that this was faked or that there were tons more shells than what would match up with the family's story. Or vice versa, that it was this huge shootout. It's, it's not true. 
everything matched up. The story matched up with what was on the scene. So screw that part. There's another myth busted for you. And there was also reports that the reason the cops got so involved was because basically they were afraid that this was some sort of throwdown between neighbors and that people were going to get killed. And maybe, but like I say, according to the chief, that wasn't the initial motivation. Because as noted, if it was a dispute like trespassing or something, the family likely would have handled it themselves and only involved the law if they absolutely had to. Now, in the backyard, there was something a little weird, which was that near the fence, where the one thing was at some point, there was this patch of grass that, per the chief, only at a certain angle, when you hit it with your flashlight, it had some shimmery glow to it. It was about a foot or two across, but they couldn't find that the grass was disturbed, and for that matter, there were no footprints anywhere, so they didn't know what to make of it. And I'll bring that up for a reason, though. We'll come back to it. Point is, it's just pitch black outside. They're not able to see hardly anything. So they tell the family that they'll come back in the morning when they can actually see. And it's now around 2 a.m. when the family's back to being alone at the farm. And then, around 2.30 in the morning, Glennie's laying in bed trying to go to sleep when she turns over and, quote, saw a little man with his hands on the window screen. The creature seemed to have come around the chimney to stand there. It put its clawy hands up on the screen and stared silently into the room. So she whispers and gets the other's attention and, and <laughs> quote, Lucky across the room was on his feet at once. He lifted his gun. I'm going to shoot, he said. For God's sake, don't, his mother answered. Lucky was not persuaded. Mama, I'm going to shoot that little man, he said and fired. <laughs> Quote, unquote, that's not, that's not me southerning it up, southerning, southerning it up. That's the quote. I just, look, look, and here I am. Can we, can we try a new tactic? Can we not destroy this woman's house? Can we maybe like tap on the window and see what it does? Maybe be all, hey, here's some bacon. I mean, they had pigs. You know that they had bacon. Everybody likes bacon. But that's the end of the incident. I couldn't find what happened with this little dude. My assumption is her window's busted and it ran off. The next day, the cops did come back, and Chief Greenwell said he was purposefully saying things opposite from their original statements when he questioned them, trying to trip them up. Like, for instance, he described the eyes as small or asked about the noises they made, but the family would correct him every time. Nope, big eyes, no noises. And he also came back out a few days later with more cops, and they searched the wooded areas around the house, and they questioned neighbors, but other than some being like, yeah, we thought we maybe heard a few gunshots. Nobody had experienced what the family had. Nobody had seen anything like little creatures. What happens next is sad. In the aftermath, people were coming out of the woodwork trying to interview the family and coming out to the farm to look around, all that stuff, because, and I'll put this in show notes, the local newspaper had a big article out the next day, which was on a Monday, and all this happened on Sunday, so everybody local knew about it. And from Davis's book, quote, as late as midnight on Monday, Hundreds of sightseers had been at the farm, and they were back in even greater numbers on Tuesday. The Suttons had no way to get rid of these visitors or even to keep them off the property. People would approach the house from almost any direction and did so. They peered into the windows, walked into the house when they felt like it, as the doors had no locks, and questioned the adults and the children, demanded that the family pose for snapshots. Enterprising snobs. Uh-huh. Enterprising small businessmen wanted to set up concessions in the yard and sell souvenirs. All of these offers were turned down. Just asshats. Absolute asshats. Just walk in the damn house. Oh my God. 
Then, regarding the media, quote, For a few days, the area buzzed with excitement. Reporters and photographers from the wire services and from individual newspapers in Indiana, Kentucky, and Tennessee poured into Hopkinsville and Kelly. A New York City newspaper made a personal investigation by telephone, resulting in a news item of superlative inaccuracy. Radio reporters came. At Kelly, automobiles blocked the roads and sightseers swarmed over the farmhouse. Skepticism rode high along with the interest. Investigators issued statements of disbelief. The Hopkinsville newspaper, the Kentucky New Era, was disdainful. And then further, talking about when she was on the scene the next year to do her interviews, Isabel Davis said, quote, These witnesses had become deeply embittered and resentful as a result of the ridicule they had received. The last thing they wanted was to talk about the case to anyone, least of all to a stranger who proposed to write about it and perhaps open the gates to more publicity and ridicule. And Glennie had told her the lies that they told about us, said we were drinking. People just want to make money out of it and sell things. And, you know, it's, it's no wonder that people were both skeptical and fascinated because, for one thing, Billy Ray wouldn't shut up. Like I mentioned, he was embellishing big time even though everybody else was on the same page because they were all telling the truth about what they saw. His version just got more and more outlandish. Quote, Later, during the investigation, Billy Ray basked in the limelight of publicity. He elaborated and embroidered his description of the creatures and eventually produced the most imaginative and least credible of the little men's sketches. And the example given in another one of my sources was that Billy Wright wanted to add antenna and a nose onto his sketch. I oh, mean, come on. <laughs> and it is a little off. It, it's the most like talking about how we know gremlins from the movies. It looks it is it is dead on gremlin. It is dead on. And the other one's a little less so, but still very gremlin esque. And you'll see that in show notes. So otherwise, all the sketches from the descriptions given by the rest of the group are pretty much the same. But he'd done damage because skeptics were immediately saying this was all a hoax and basically saying it was Billy Ray who orchestrated the whole thing because, quote, his behavior was in sharp contrast to that of the other witnesses, none of whom aroused such prompt suspicion in the investigators. Just goddamn it, Billy Ray. Why do you have to show out? It just, I hate people like that. Gotta ruin it for everyone. So let's break this down, and we may as well start there with the UFO alien, you know, crazy antenna. Love it. Love I do love that. With the UFO alien angle. And I will pause here and say, my reason for not chucking this into the alien file, A, because I don't want to do aliens on this show, but mainly because at the time, in the early 50s, flying saucer sightings were really kicking up, and from all over, not just in America. And some of them involved seeing creatures, the classic little green men. So this topic was decently frequently in the news. And I say that to say, for that reason, it doesn't surprise me that his mind jumped to aliens. With, you know, the combo of seeing whatever streak across the sky. But as one of my sources pointed out, none of the original witnesses described these things like the classic little green men. Some of the papers did. But they didn't. And like I said, when you see the sketches, they don't remotely fit into the typical creature that was being described in most of these stories that were making the news. And that's why, for the most part, people seem to refer to it as a goblin incident. I, of course, vote gremlin. I'm, but that's actually no, not what I vote. I'll tell you what I think later on. Because, of course, I will. That's why you're here. You love hearing what I think. Now, if you happen to be curious about the breadth 
of UFO sightings during this time. And there was a mind-boggling amount. In show notes, you're going to see where I link to Davis's book that's available online in full. And they give a detailed rundown of a ton of instances in the very first pages. It's really astonishing. Bottom line, though, in this case, it was a meteor shower. Many people witnessed it, and it's documented as having occurred that night. Actually, you know what? Probably for several nights, come to think of it, because don't those tend to last a few nights? Yeah. Yeah, I don't think it's like a one-night thing. So probably for several nights, and it was the Perseids meteor shower. In that area specifically, it was the minor shower within it called the Kappa Cygnids. So, yeah, shooting star. No UFO, not unidentified, totally identified. And I didn't get into this. I didn't even put it in my notes, but I can tell you there's, there's no, th- there was nothing found, like an object. There was never any, there weren't even a meteor found. It probably burned up in the atmosphere. So, okay. Secondly, and related, there's the Air Force angle, and it's one of those things you may see in relation to this story stated as fact that the Air Force got involved, but there's no evidence to back this up, even though it had already been reported on Monday. So, and this was quick, by Tuesday, the Air Force sent out press statements that said there was no official investigation into any spaceship or passengers from Hopkinsville and that there was no basis to any of the reports. And what I think might be a source of confusion is, is that Fort Campbell, which is in the same county, it's just closer to the Tennessee-Kentucky border, but it's not terribly far away from Hopkinsville. It does have some air personnel stationed there. A matter of fact, it's the home of the famous 101st Airborne Division, but it's not an Air Force base. It's an Army base, and they didn't have anything to do with Project Blue Book. What is that, you ask? And I shall tell you. Project Blue Book was, quote, one of a series of systematic studies of unidentified flying objects conducted by the United States Air Force. Project Blue Book had two goals, to determine if UFOs were a threat to national security and to scientifically analyze UFO-related data. And by the time Project Blue Book ended in January of 1970, they had amassed 12,618 reports on UFO sightings and, quote, concluded that most of them were misidentifications of natural phenomena or conventional aircraft. And then later, when it could be revealed, it was added that in addition, a number of them were due to sightings of aircraft that were experimental and classified at the time, which is understandable that they wouldn't spill those beans in the first go of the report, (laughs) you know, because hello, classified. In a 2012 piece in Skeptoid, science writer Brian Dunning looked into the supposed involvement of the Air Force because he'd also seen it referenced in other stuff written about this incident, and he found nothing in Project Blue Book, all of which is now because of FOIA, which is, for those outside the U.S., that's the Freedom of Information Act. A lot of it was already available way long time ago. Like, they ponied it up pretty fast after they closed the project, but... My understanding is that even more became available, more documentation came available through FOIA. So he started with the basic thing that you think to do, which he did a search for Hopkinsville. And all that shows up was just that it was amongst a list of other location names under a section from a lecture about hoaxes. And the bullet point said Hopkinsville Little Green Men case. So, I mean, there's what they thought. (laughs) There you go. It was under hoaxes. And he speculates that this misunderstanding may be because he had discovered sufficient evidence to sell him on the fact that there were four military police from Fort Campbell who came along with the local officers at some point. But again, that's Army. That's not Air Force. 
Dunning couldn't find records of why they were called or who called them to come out. But the point is, he simply didn't find evidence that any facet of the military was formally looking into Hopkinsville as a possible invasion scenario or whatnot. Now, an article on mental floss, who are typically very solid, while they don't cite their source for this, I suspect it's from Davis's book because she co-authored it. And I read her section because her section is specifically just on Hopkinsville. And I think it's in there because of some stuff that I noted reading. But again, I scanned. Look, I'll be honest. It's, it's, a, it's a dive. So I scanned. I'll admit it. I'll go ahead and share this because it made me laugh a lot. They said that nobody from the military looked into the case until 1957 when a major John Albert interviewed the family, quote, none of whom changed their story, and did a cursory examination of the facts before determining that the goblins were not aliens nor were the Suttons perpetrating a hoax. In his opinion, what they had most likely seen was a monkey that had escaped from somewhere, maybe a traveling circus that could have been in the area, though he could never confirm if such a circus existed. That's, I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> it could be a monkey from a circus that was definitely not here. Huh. Okay. A monkey from a circus. Davis does mention this in the book, like I say but says that there was no record of a traveling circus in the area in that time period. And let's be real, y'all, if monkeys got loose, there ain't no way that that wouldn't have made the news. Plus, monkeys aren't gliding down from roofs, and they certainly aren't quiet, and they don't... Just stop. They don't float. They don't float. If, if you have a monkey and it floats, you need to get to the vet. Something's wrong. Something's gone horribly wrong. <laughs> That's not entirely just a monkey. And while it's an excellent source because of all the on-location interviews she did, Davis's book is published by the Center for UFO Studies, so there's inherent bias there. And it just has this tone of wanting to prove an alien connection. And her book is one of the ones that perpetuate the rumors, saying that while she also noted that the Blue Book indicates no involvement, and reporting on the Air Force press statement that I mentioned, at the same time, the vibe you get from how she's written this up is one of, but why would they admit it? They're denying it because maybe this really was a legit alien encounter. Do you know what I mean? It, it just, it smacks of a conspiratorial type take on things. So she talks about an Evansville, Illinois newspaper article. And remember, the Air Force has already been like, don't put stock into these reports. It said that an Air Force major, Major Albert Corrin, so a different one than the one that supposedly gets sent later in 57, that he went to the scene at the time. And this is supposedly according to sheriff's officers. And then old Chief Greenwell, quote, stated definitively that Air Force intelligence from Fort Campbell was on the scene. And he also told her that two men were sent from a commercial airfield in Louisville, Kentucky, and that he was under the impression that they were civil defense officials. Davis also mentions that the man who did the sketches offered them to military personnel, which we know there's no Air Force intelligence at Fort Campbell. And besides that, which is it? Did they get involved? Did they not get involved until 1957? Or were they on the site pretty fast? Like, it can't be, it can't be both. It's... What is it? So this is a bunch of conjecture is what I'm getting after. None of this can be backed up with evidence. And the Blue Book's whole purpose was to catalog incidents and evidence. So, and people's testimonies, whatever. 
So my take is that the powers that be didn't find the family story robust enough to even warrant an investigation. I just wanted to mention all this conflicting information about the Air Force angle because one of the things paranormal gurus point to regarding the legitimacy of this being something otherworldly is that, oh, but the government got involved. Well, I mean, they got involved in lots of that stuff, as we've said. So if they did get into this, it wouldn't be anything special, but they didn't. Investigating something doesn't lend legitimacy to the premise. People investigate things all the time that turn out to be bullshit. So I don't, I'm not tracking with that either, that logic. Well, because somebody investigated it, it must have been true. No. Lastly, and what you've been waiting for, what the hell did these poor people encounter? Well, for that, allow me to introduce you to Joe Nickel, and I am almost positive he's made an appearance in my show notes before. He is great. Nickel is a legit paranormal investigator because he looks at things first through a logical lens, not necessarily a skeptical lens, just logic. And what I mean by that is he comes across situations and he will try to suspend notions of belief or disbelief because he wants to eliminate confirmation bias. So when he approaches this stuff, the paranormal and the supernatural and all that, he calls it searching for the preferred hypothesis based off of the question of how do we know we've solved a mystery when there's competing notions. And for him, it comes down to Occam's razor. So in this case, before we get to monsters or aliens, let's look to creatures we know exist. Oh, and for anybody who doesn't know, while I'm here, Occam's razor is the principle that entities should not be multiplied without necessity or... To put it another way, when you've got competing hypotheses that make the same or similar predictions, go for the one that makes the fewest assumptions. Just streamline that shit. Go for the simplest explanation. That's all Occam's Razor is. Anyway, another reason that I like Nickel is that he's totally open to people disagreeing with him. In this case, he's like, you know, if somebody can argue for another known creature that fits also or fits better, then he welcomes it. But he says, quote, they can't not just like my hypothesis, meaning they'd have to not only disprove him, but also offer just as plausible an explanation, because that's how proper analysis and critical thinking goes, yo. His goal when looking at this stuff in a nutshell is finding an answer that is just what Occam's razor is driving at, saying he wants an answer that, quote, is the simplest one with the most explanatory details. And I think that y'all will agree regarding this case, he nailed it. Like I said earlier, I don't think this was a hoax. I think that there was indeed something out there, and so does Nickel. So let's put ourselves in the family's shoes for a second and talk about the handicaps. That it's dark night is probably the biggest one. These aren't super sophisticated or well-off folks. And in the interview with Nickel that you'll find a link to in show notes, it's pointed out by the interviewer that it's clear these people aren't made of money. And so who knows the state of their vision if maybe they needed glasses. And I found that to be an excellent point. And as noted, they're kind of primed to be operating under the assumption that this was a possible UFO and aliens because that was the trend of the time. If we follow a logical process, putting aside aliens and goblins and gremlins and stuff of that ilk and focus on things known to exist, we can rule out two-foot-tall humans. Ruling out humans leaves us with animals. Now we ask, are there any animals that would fit this bill? Well, do you have a guess? Are there? I don't know. I'm thinking some kind of bird. I don't know, like a 
my mind went to turkeys. <laughs> if it were turkeys, they would have they would have made themselves known. There would have been no cautious approach. Now, all right, you ready? I'm ready. Nickel identified 25 points of similarity between the description of the creatures seen on the farm that night and, drum roll, the great horned owl. Ooh, okay. It's possibly why I kept mentioning the trees, y'all. And yes, their habitat can be in this area. So let's get that out of the way. It's not a rogue it's 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 normal for great horned owls to be in this area it's not a rogue circus monkey it's it's okay darn it some of the points of similarity include and i'm not because i'm not going to list all 25 but they include that no more than two were seen at any time and that tracks with them because great horned owls are monogamous mates they are just over two feet tall when they're you know standing erect The feathers that stick up into the sides of their head a bit can look like those pointy ears. Oh, and I didn't mention this earlier, but you'll see it in the sketches. They describe no neck. These things are basically head and straight into shoulders. And so, you know, on an owl, you wouldn't see the neck because that's what an owl looks like. Head, then straight into torso. Wide spaced eyes and shiny glowy yellow, which that's owl eye shine and well from what i read not every bird has this or at least not so distinctively owls have it very distinctively and that the eyes never moved which also tracks the whole raised its hands every time it got ready to float um (laughs) them are wings (laughs) and the great horned owl's wings have feathers that are they kind of separate at the end so they they would look like large they digits look like claws oh my well God. no they look like large digits but yeah. the claws are just birdie talons because like when the wings were down to the side and it's dark as shit so it just blended in with their big fat talons so they thought that those were fingers and that the arms were just dragging the ground but those were the feet because they were like we never saw feet and there were no footprints well no there wouldn't be because Anyway, so birdie talons, they walk awkwardly till it picked up speed. And these owls do walk and they can haul ass when they're on the ground. And in this case, they were likely walking around in the dark looking for field mice who were also out cruising at night. The whole floated 40 feet from the roof to the fence thing. Well, owls are quite silent and they glide down to catch prey. And lastly, zero fear of humans. They're curious little a-holes. If you've ever been around or watched footage on owls, you'll know this. They have zero qualms about checking stuff out. They just aren't typically skittish birds and super aggressive birds unless they have good reason to be. But how did they not get dead, Nash, you ask? Well, I'm sure they did get pinged. But as established, it does not seem that the guys were terribly good shots. And... Plus, we're talking buckshot from a good distance away from a not terribly large gauge. So, I mean, yeah, I'm sure they got danged. But also, they've got their wings raised because that's what everybody said. Their arms were up. The wings are raised. So when they're firing, they're probably nicking off feathers. Those feathers that are now spread and up is my guess. Because if, 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 or who knows, maybe they are getting pinged in the torso, but. They're huge, fluffy, and mm-hmm. it's buckshot. So anyway, I have no idea, but it didn't kill them, obviously, because there's no owl bodies found. 
hello, when Billy Ray and Lucky looked around, nor were they found by any cops. So the answer is nothing died. Whether you're cool with it being owls or you want to defy logic and go gremlin, nothing died. I will note that one thing Nickel can't explain is that little patch of glowy, shimmery grass. But others have put out there that local to the area is this moss. And it's they call it moss. It's actually fungi called foxfire. And it has this bioluminescent quality. So who knows? Maybe the owls had some on their feathers. And when they got pelted, it knocked some off. There, there's just no telling. I will say that you may have heard some birds will fluoresce in the dark. But that's under black light. Their feathers, like veins in the feathers and all, and their beak will fluoresce. But, of course, there's no black light here. Just want to throw that out there. Nickel does say, though, that when the owls were raising their wings up, it's entirely possible that moonlight caught their lighter belly feathers and it reflected. And speaking of feathers, in terms of evidence that would have been nice to definitively prove Nickel's hypothesis, I mean, think about it. When the cops were back and looking around, Nobody was looking for evidence that it was something natural. They were looking for signs of something unnatural. And so in the interview that I've linked you to that was done with Nickel, they were talking about, you know, if any of us were there, we'd likely be cataloging everything. And who knows, that everything might have included, you know, bird tracks and feathers that had been shot off and maybe, you know, Tiff's favorite, owl pellets. Because wouldn't wouldn't you puke if you were the owl and you were caught in this shitstorm? I would. (laughs) Just there. But people still believe it could have been goblin-y gremlins or aliens. There is one specific group of believers that I want to note. One small group consisting of two. And they are the children of Lucky Sutton, a sister and a brother named Geraldine and Elmer. In a 2002 interview, they talked about how they absolutely believed their father's account. That he was really closed-lipped about it, but then finally opened up more when they were adults. And understandably, they didn't appreciate how, quote, many of the reports referred to the Suttons as a low-status group of people and used their father and Taylor's employment, talking about Billy Ray, with a carnival to discredit the family's story. And Geraldine says about the suggestion that it was a hoax, he, talking about her dad, wasn't that type of person. You could look at him and tell that something happened to them that night. They couldn't have made up something like that. They were just country folks. They wouldn't have thought to think up something so elaborate. They wouldn't have run to the town terrified in the middle of the night. And then Elmer said, It was a serious thing to him. It happened to him. He said it happened to him. He said it wasn't funny. It was an experience he said he would never forget. It was fresh in his mind until the day he died, like it happened yesterday. He never cracked a smile when he told the story because there wasn't nothing funny about it. He got pale, and you could see it in his eyes. He was scared to death. And again, I don't dispute that they saw something and were frightened. I just don't think it was something otherworldly. But on an aside, real quick, Geraldine has since written a couple books and screenplays, and she has a YouTube channel, so I'll link you guys to all that in show notes. She seems like a really nice lady, and I'll link you to an interview that Kentucky Educational Television did with her, too. So I'm going to end this with how Joe Nickel wrapped up his piece, because I can't do it any better. Quote, In summary, allowing for the heightened expectation prompted by the earlier flying saucer sighting and for the effects of excitement and nighttime viewing, it seems likely that the famous 1955 Kelly incident is easily explained by a meteor and a pair of territorial owls. What a hoot. And that... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you nerd. Oh, no. Nickel, you nerd. I love it though. 
And that is your tale of the Kelly Hopkinsville goblins that were totally gremlins. No, not really. They were big SLs. Gremlins. They were gremlins. They were feathered they gremlins. Were gremlins. They were gremlins. They were gremlins. They were fat ass gremlins, though. Boy, howdy. <laughs> All right. Hit me. T- tell me, because I'm dying to hear yours. I know a fractional amount about it, and I've been waiting on this all week. So gremlins, I'm really glad that you touched on the entomology and how it all Time came out. to be. Entomology is the study of bugs. Etymology. Etymology. <laughs> Thank I'm, you. I'm not editing this out. <laughs> this is going to stay in the podcast. For everybody, for those words that you mix up. I will edit out everything that I messed up on, but this. <laughs> so, yes, the history of the word, the source. <laughs> I assumed that gremlins have existed for a long time. And I think it's just because I always associated them in my head, like with goblins or fairies or leprechauns or other weird little creatures. And I never imagined that people within the last century coming up with something like this. We've been proven wrong before. And I I checked just because I needed to know for myself. There's no connection between Arthur Conan Doyle and Gremlins. Okay, say now here we go. Part of me was relieved. Part of me was disappointed. I cannot believe that he he's always connected. (laughs) (laughs) Or the P.T. Barnum. We haven't done the P.T. Barnum episode yet. It will come. But the P.T. Barnum, oh, he didn't have one. Because <laughs> it's always him or Arthur Conan Doyle. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. And if I'm wrong, if somebody knows of some other source, but I couldn't find anything, no Doyle. So the first recorded use of the word gremlin was by the Royal Air Force in the 1920s. It was a popular term used by pilots located in Malta, in the Middle East, and in India. Prior to this, a lot of these creatures were seen as friendly and helpful, kind of like what you had talked about with the beer gremlin. <laughs> How precious is that? The beer. Yeah. I love it. The beer gremlin. You know, they were they were believed to help inventors, even including Benjamin Franklin with his work with electricity. They were like the elves helping the cobbler, you know, these just these little creatures that are just doing good, being benevolent, just Hey, humans, we've got tiny hands and we'll do this for you while you sleep. But that changed. It evolved into quite the opposite by the 1920s. And according to The Spectator, that just after World War I, the old Royal Naval Air Service in 1917 and the newly constituted Royal Air Force in 1918 have detected the existence of a horde of mysterious and malicious spirits whose purpose in life was to bring about as many as possible of the inexplicable mishaps, which in those days, as now, trouble an airman's life. Dun, dun, dun. And it seems like kind of a blip. Just, oh, that's a weird thing for them to say. Except stories like that continued. In 1923, we get the first major story of gremlin trouble on a plane. A British pilot crashed into the sea He survived, but when he talked about what happened to cause the crash, he told people that it was gremlins. He described them as little people, that they had jumped out of a beer bottle the previous night. They annoyed him all night and all morning before he got onto his plane. They followed him onto the plane, messed with the controls, and sabotaged the engine. 
leading it to go down into the sea. Did people treat him like he was missing a few screws? They should. No. What? <laughs> he needed help, y'all. No, no. After that, stories of gremlins wreaking havoc continued. One source said that gremlins pulled pranks on the pilots, but given the long list of trouble that they were responsible for, I feel like that is a massive understatement. Like that is just, that's trying to play them off as cute. They are not cute. And I'll let you judge while I list off some of the things that they are known or reported to be responsible for. Gremlins were said to engage in a myriad of bad behavior, such as sucking the gas out of tanks through hoses, jamming radio frequencies, mucking up landing gear, blowing dust or sand into fuel pipes or sensitive electrical equipment, cutting wires, removing bolts or screws, tinkering with dials, knobs, or switches, jostling controls, slashing wings or tires, poking or pinching gunners or pilots, banging incessantly on the fuselage, breaking windows, and a wide variety of other prankish acts. Pilots even claimed that they were being telepathically controlled by the gremlins, that they would put visions into their mind, and it would cause them to fly toward the clouds or towards like the ground or mountains. They were seen by the pilots as they were flying, and they would be on the wings, they would be sitting on the nose of the plane, they would be sitting right outside the windows, just staring at them. And they were doing everything that they can to try to distract the pilots and the crews, and especially the gunners that were on the planes that were trying to line up the sights and shoot down the enemies. But no, the the gremlins were there to mess all that up. Maybe it's just me, but after going through that list, a lot of those things happen miles above the ground. And that's not a prank. (laughs) That's like, malicious intent and sabotage. That's horrible. So at this point, you may have noticed that I've been focusing on stories from British pilots. And you may assume that it became a thing or a tale or a superstition that was isolated among the Royal Air Force pilots. And I'm sure you can tell by the way that I've worded this, that that's not right. Lucky Lindy, Charles Lindbergh, in 1927 stated that he encountered gremlins about nine hours into his flight from New York to Paris. He described them as nearly transparent, but grim and menacing. But he had a good batch of gremlins. They were apparently pretty good buddies. They chatted with him. They imparted mystical wisdom that he opted to keep for himself and said that they actually kept him alert and reassured him that he would remain safe on his journey. So good for him. I think that's really the only account of. Uh, happy, nice, grim, but menacing-looking gremlins that I came across. In 1939, there was an incident with a military plane that was flying from California to Hawaii. After about three hours of flying, they made a distress call. They went radio silent, turned to fly back to the base in California, and when the plane came to a stop, it looked like it had taken some missile damage. When they opened it up, the bodies of 12 of the 13 men on board were found with gaping wounds of an unknown origin, The stench of sulfur overwhelmed the cabin. The men had unloaded all of the bullets from their firearms, and the only survivor was the co-pilot, who managed to land the plane but died a few days later in the hospital without being able to describe what happened. But it was apparent that they had been attacked by something based on the scene. Okay. Does anybody, in your research, did anybody have any theories? That it was gremlins. 
(laughs) (laughs) My thought is somebody like was wounding themselves with something. Well, they never found anything sharp. You would think that would be mentioned. My thought is somebody lost their cookies and that makes it sound like they puked. No, that's Tasha cookies. Anyway, lost their marbles and was like cutting on themselves and then went nuts. But you'd think that many men would be able to stop it. Stop Mm -hmm. one guy. Because I was thinking, okay, so he did all that. And if all the firearms were empty, then he he must have shot himself. But why didn't they just shoot him? I had no hypothesis is what I'm driving at. (laughs) And was hoping that someone else did. No, because it's gremlins. I don't know what your argument is there. It's not gremlins. It's not owls. <laughs> it ain't owls and I ain't gremlins. <laughs> now, moving ahead in time, things are ramping up with World War II. And there's talk of gremlins being deployed by the Nazis to mess with the Allied forces. However, that claim was actually withdrawn once it was noticed that German pilots were also experiencing the same issues with gremlins while they were flying. In fact, by World War II, gremlins had become such an issue, they were officially recognized by the British Air Ministry, where, quote, they were studied on the ministry's behalf by the well-known gremlorist pilot officer Percy Prune, who wrote up their exploits in a service manual. This was the first official document to take gremlins seriously and to propose ways to either placate them or distract them sufficiently to accomplish the mission without major mishap. Now, there's an account from an American fighter pilot known as L.W. that was noted in several of my sources because of his detailed account of his gremlin encounter. While flying a combat mission, L.W. says, I am very aware of my surroundings, and as I go higher, I notice an unusual sound coming from the engine. The instruments went nuts. I look at my right, and I see an entity staring at me. Then I look at the aircraft's nose, and there is another one. Hanging in there, dancing lizards. So let's just take a break. <laughs> let's leave off at dancing lizards for a moment. Settle in and kind of examine things. So he acknowledges that there is a worry, you know, that he maybe was suffering from hallucinations or something that was called spatial disorientation. And some people have probably already been thinking about stuff like that as I've been talking. Many people disregarded the gremlin phenomena as hallucinations due to flying at high altitudes and the thin air, or as LW notes, spatial disorientation, which as a person who has problems with vertigo, just reading about it made me kind of spin a little bit. So a little bit of a fair warning there. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you nailed it. I was about to say oxygen deprivation. Mm Mm-hmm. So here's a little bit of information that I got on spatial disorientation from Encyclopedia Britannica. It's the inability of a person to determine his true body position, motion, and altitude relative to the earth or his surroundings. Both airplane pilots and underwater divers encounter the phenomenon. Most clues with respect to orientation are derived from sensations received from the eyes, ears, muscles, and skin. The human sensory apparatus, however, is not delicate enough to perceive slow and gradual changes in motion. And focusing specifically on pilots... Visual misinterpretations do not usually depend on acceleration or on the sense of equilibrium, but visual illusions. There's autokinetic phenomenon, which is the apparent wandering of an object or a spot of light. So while they're up there, you know, they try to focus on the clouds or something else, but because your brain is still trying to connect with you moving and not necessarily having a spot that you can focus on, it 
they kind of lose it a little bit. So you can mix that with the thin air and you're starting to maybe come up with your own spots and maybe they have big ears, <laughs> maybe they have big eyes and maybe they're shaking the plane. But, you know, maybe it's not a hallucination. Let's go back to LW. He checked himself and found that he was in good shape. He was still seeing the little creepy monsters, though. And they were laughing like maniacs. They were pulling and they were beating on the outside of the plane. They were trying to pull off panels and instruments. And he said that he got a really, really good look at them. He says the creatures were three foot tall and had hairless gray skin. The eyes were a deep red color and their mouths were so big he could almost count their teeth. Their ears were long and pointy with a small black patch of hair growing on the tips that reminded him of an owl's ear. So there we are, owls again. (laughs) He tried to keep this to himself. You know, he was like, that was crazy. People are going to think I'm crazy. I can't tell anybody about this. But after a few days, he was like, okay, am I crazy? Do I need to share this with somebody? And he did. He told another gunner. And that person responded like, me too. I have had that same experience. I've seen those same things. But they agreed that they would not tell any of the officers because they didn't want to be invalidated from being able to fly. So good call on their part. And for a few years, LW actually thought that they may have been some sort of soldier developed by the Japanese until the UFO incident in Roswell made him come up with another theory. But we know that it was gremlins. OTF. We're not digging into the UFOs. <laughs> Please, let's, again, UFOs are following me, like. <laughs> I love when our stories are so just perfectly entwined. There's I so know. much. I know. So let's talk about the different types of gremlins. There are several, several kinds. There are jockeys who sit cross-legged between the wings of a wayward seagull or pigeon and guide the bird into the windscreen of a fighter plane while in flight. Oh, shut up, pigeons. (laughs) There's cavity types who have shovel-shaped noses that they use to dig runway holes in the paths of fighters or bombers coming in for landings. Incisors, they chew mercilessly on strut wires. There are puffs who use their big stomachs to suck air out from under wings, <laughs> causing turbulence. Puffs. Uh-huh. Like, like, like the tissue. Yeah. You can also wipe your nose on them. <laughs> Let's see. There are optics who like to hide in bomb sites, turning on the optic glow of their red or green eyes, just as a bombardier was lining up his sights on a target. So we've got quite a few types. They've got either red or green eyes, but they love tearing apart planes. What I came across, there's a mixture of belief in the gremlins and them also being a military inside joke. One source noted that they were probably used to haze new recruits. And I just have to quote this because it's just written so well. How sweet it must have been, after realizing a mark was vulnerable, to engage in a tall tale told in such earnestness that it seemed only to confirm the teller's veracity. Why, that engine just up and quit on me, and down we went, a pilot might report. Old Tex, he's my rear gunner, you know. Why, he yelled, Skipper, say right now you believe in them spark-plug gremlins. Say it out loud. Well, I did so, and just before we hit the water, that big, beautiful Allison fired right up and purred like a kitten all the way home. 
so yeah so they're they're just piling it on there just trying to get guys to admit that they believe in in gremlins that actually makes the most sense in the people who did you know suffer from oxygen deprivation or that extreme vertigo sensation or whatnot that was one of the things that popped into their minds because it was so instilled in them Mm -hmm. that okay i'm satisfied but keep going but i'm satisfied (laughs) you know some acknowledged that the gremlins were an excuse to cover up fear I read in one source that the average lifespan of a Spitfire pilot was about four weeks. Another source said it was about 11 days once they got up in the air. Either way, that's not a long time. So something goes wrong, the gremlin did it. You know, the the gunner had a panic attack? Nope, the gremlin was messing with the rifle. Some mechanic messed up during a tune-up? No, the gremlin took that part hallucinating because there was actually a real problem with pressurization in planes at the time? No, it was gremlins. So it was a way to keep from pointing fingers in an already stressful time, but also pass the blame. And it's funny because I came across John Hazen as well. And he had a line that I really liked that said, the gremlin has been locked on as a new phenomenon, the product of the machine age, the age of air. Another author and historian named Marlon Bressy also said that imaginary gremlins played a crucial part to the airmen of the British Royal Air Force, saying gremlin tales helped build morale among pilots, which in turn helped them repel the Luftwaffe invasion during the Battle of Britain during the summer of 1940. So they embraced the gremlins. The women Air Force service pilots, known as WASPs, actually used a female gremlin named Fifanella as their official mascot. And there was a poem that was published in Royal Air Force bulletins that's very, very tongue-in-cheek, talking about the different gremlins that you might see and what shenanigans they might be up to. As this was all going on, a very smart man, you may be familiar with his name, Walt Disney, he was busy finding ways to capitalize on them. He wrote an article that appeared in U.S. newspapers that was accompanied by his own drawings, and it actually related some of the tales that he had heard coming in from the Royal Air Force. Ever seen a real gremlin, he wrote? No? Well, maybe it's because you haven't been up in a British Spitfire swapping bullets with a Messerschmitt or dodging German flak in a bombing raid over Hamburg. So he had gremlins on his mind. And he must have been sharing brainwaves because another person that you know of and Nash mentioned, Roald Dahl, was busy writing his very first children's story called The Gremlins. He wrote the story while he was stationed in Washington in 1942, published it in 1943. And he didn't just snag the idea out of thin air. It wasn't like how Disney had been hearing it from other people. Dahl had been a fighter pilot himself. He actually flew missions in North Africa and in the Battle of Athens. He survived a serious crash and was sadly no longer eligible to fly. So he worked as an attache with the British Air Mission in the United States. The story was highly influenced by his own experience as a pilot and his regrets about no longer being able to fly. He included the line, to a pilot, being alive but earthbound is worse than not being alive at all. So I really kind of felt for him. It's definitely, it's very much like an author, you know, it's author insert. (laughs) Right, right, right. It's very, you know, close to his heart. There's even a special edition that was published in 
2007, sorry, I'm going off of my memory here, that commemorated the anniversary of the Air Force. And it had the story in there, some of the kind of behind the scenes, some of his life story, and it completely sold out. So it's it's a very special story, especially for, for pilots and people in the Air Force. The story, The Gremlins, is a fable of tiny creatures who flew on missions with Spitfire and Hurricane pilots. And it was very successful when it was initially published, so much so that Disney approached Dahl about turning it into a feature film. Now, Disney and Dahl, they worked together, and they did put out a few more popular Gremlin stories, some comics, you know, kind of just some serial things. They even developed a popular character named Gremlin Gus. And, you know, Fifanella that I mentioned a little bit ago, the wasp mascot. Uh-huh. Yeah, the Air Force actually had to get permission from Disney to use her because she was one of their characters that they had developed. But they were never able to actually move ahead on the movie, which, according to Roy Disney, was due to, and this made me giggle because <laughs> it's kind of ironic, technical issues. <laughs> the gremlins just want you <laughs> to keep your damn mouth shut. <laughs> you hate to say it. <laughs> Now, Disney was trying real hard to capitalize on the Gremlins, and they actually fought with other studios to keep them from getting in on the popularity. A court did rule against them, but there was kind of a gentleman's agreement with a few of the studios, except for Columbia. And Roy actually wrote to the studio president saying, Harry, you know Walt and me well enough to realize we wouldn't give two hoots about competition but I'm very worried when we start to make a feature film that takes us at least a year to produce and costs us at least 600000 to 800000 I'm worried at the thought of having a property of this size undermined and hurt by a lot of single reels that may saturate the public's desire to see a gremlin feature and really do us considerable harm in the marketing of it. But the guys at Columbia were already busy making a few of those shorts, and they decided they were too far along to quit. And producer Leon Schlesinger finished and released them anyway. The first one was called Falling Hair, an eight-minute cartoon in which Bugs Bunny gets nearly murdered by a gremlin after he first almost commits suicide by whacking a bomb. It's a cartoon that's definitely a product of its time. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The next animated short that featured the gremlin was called Russian Rhapsody. That was put out in 1944 which is really just a bunch of gags as Hitler gets so fed up with failing pilots and not believing that they are being taken down by gremlins that he goes out in a plane himself. And of course, gremlin shenanigans ensue. You'll find links to both of those in show notes. And, uh, you know, if you're up for it, you can watch it. It's interesting to just kind of see how it was popularized, how it was promoted to kids. But after that, gremlins were not really consistently popular. The next big moment for Gremlins came in 1947 when Dahl published another work called Sometime Never, A Fable for Superman, which is described as a serious adult novel about a race of nature-loving gremlins that are trying to escape the human world of continuous warfare. Then there's the classic, wonderfully weird episode of The Twilight Zone from 1963. One of my favorites. Absolutely oh. one of my favorites. It's the best. Everybody, you guys all know this. You all know it. I guarantee it. Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, starring William Shatner, featured an evil gremlin attempting to rip an engine from the wing of an airliner in which he's flying. 
I am going to spare you a terrible impression, but I know you can picture it in your mind. Go find it and watch it. I think they remade it too, didn't they? Isn't there a modern Twilight Zone? I think, yeah, I think they, well, you know what? I'm going to hunt down that clip for y'all, even if I, <laughs> even if I have to pull it myself and make it for our YouTube channel. I don't think I'm going to have to though. It's so popular. Surely it's somewhere that I can link yeah. you guys to. Yeah. And then of course, finally, finally, we come back to where we started to the 1984 film directed by Joe Dante, written by Chris Columbus, executive produced by Steven Spielberg, the masterpiece and Christmas classic known as Gremlins. It is a masterpiece. I, I don't think we're overstating it. It's amazing. And, you know, if, you, if you've got young children, maybe watch it at least one time without them so you can judge how scary it is because it's pretty gruesome. And it's actually the reason why the PG-13 rating exists because there was enough violence in it that they actually wanted to give it an R, but they kind of fought back with the studio. They went back and forth with removing some of the the worst deaths and gore. And so, yeah, so now that's why we get PG-13. So thanks, Gremlins. I did not know that. Today I learned. <laughs> so, yeah, Gremlins are, Gremlins are interesting. I hope that you guys do check out show notes because there's going to be a link for a part of my story that is it's really really fun and the site takes a very serious approach to scientifically examining the mogwai and gremlins and i laughed my ass off while paging through it because i mean they're even like if you shave it down you'll find that the creature doesn't even have nipples and you're like what what <laughs> what because <laughs> they reproduce asexually <laughs> oh god well and it's you know amazing. what good point they got a point yeah, it's amazing. So you guys need to check that out because it's it's going to be a good time. And then, you know, I kind of have one final thing here that's a little bit more thoughtful. And as much as, you know, I kind of want to scream and be like, it is something on the wing. You know, it's it's gremlins, it's gizmo and stripe and whatnot. There's this idea from Ernest K. Gann, who is an aviator and an author, and he suggested the possibility of an unseen, often capricious hand whose self-appointed purpose was to balance the yin and the yang in human life. You know, he questions why he was spared when he had a certain malfunction or damage to his plane while another pilot in the exact same situation would have died. Fate, he couldn't quite come up with a good explanation. But he says, you know, is it really so remarkable that early pilots confronted with the poorly understood science of flying and themselves subject to sudden unexplainable events would feel the need to offer something tangible to account for why a friend suddenly perished and they were still happily flying? Would airmen not do what all humans have done for millennia when confronted with similar dilemmas, snatch the inexplicable away from the cosmos and give it form back here on Earth? After all, isn't that why humans conjured fairies, goblins, gnomes? leprechauns and their ilk in the first place oh i like that yeah i like that so that's it that's what i have to tell you about gremlins they really like airplanes and world war ii and world war ii yeah you mentioned the hitler stuff that's earmarked as a definite episode topic we're going to talk about supernatural and the nazis that's mm -hmm. that's a massive story yeah it's a good one too oh yeah there's a reason why Indiana Jones was doing all that, you guys. Exactly. Yeah. No, we won't be retelling you. 
the story of the Ark of the Covenant or Crystal Skulls or God forbid Crystal Skulls. Oh no. No. Crystal Skulls who? No, I don't what? we don't acknowledge that movie. That's it. Merry Christmas. I hope that you're watching Gremlins and enjoying some eggnog or whatever it is that you do to celebrate. Keep listening for the outro where we tell you how you can get at us on socials and email. And we continue to encourage you to review us when you can. But really, we just care about hearing from you. Review or don't, you know. And if you have ideas for sign-offs, we're still wanting those because everything we come up with, somebody else has already done. Oh, another thing is if y'all want a nickname, then hit us up with that. The most recent one we got, and, and listen, the timing on this just couldn't have been better. A listener called, and well, I mean, it's not their real name. It could be. But to us, they are, oh, and get ready for me to butcher this one, Laquius Ludovicus reminded us that we had said in some episode that the listeners were our lovely ghosts and goblins. How about that? <laughs> we could just call you the gremlins, too. We could just make it. A, hey, gremlins. Hey. Hey. So anyway, ideas for that would be great. But that's it. Happy holidays, everybody. Happy holidays. Celebrate safely. Watch out for gremlins. <laughs> Don't climb in the chimney. Oh, my God. Do you know, I did look into that for a spooky snack for Christmas, which you guys have probably already heard the one we chose. But when I was looking into that, y'all, it is so sad. Like, there was nothing fun about it. There was nothing. I was like, no, mm -hmm. but but are, we, we could do some of the sad. But are there cases where it was like a whoopsie doodle or, or that somebody succeeded or that no. or that no, they got them out in time? It never. Y'all. Yeah. Don't do that. Don't do it. And on that happy note. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You guys rock. We'll see you in January. Thanks so much for listening. As a reminder, you can check out our sources for each of the episodes at show notes, along with any supplemental things we think you might enjoy. Visit us on our blog at youtotallymadethatup.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Twitter at YTMTU Podcast and on Instagram at You Totally Made That Up. Feel free to contact us on those platforms and you can also email us. That address is You Totally Made That Up at gmail.com.